Daniel Lombroso is a director and journalist. His debut feature film, White Noise, based on four years of reporting inside the alt-right, premiered last year and was met with high praise from film critics. The film has also garnered a large academic audience. Scholars of communication, sociology, and political science especially regard it as a singular first-hand account of the shape and scale of the current networked nature of white nationalism. In my interview with him, we talk about how it's maybe more productive to try and steer clear of media accounts that privilege the hot take and easy answers so that we can pose more critical questions about how ridiculously complex our current global society has become and the challenges that we face. Our discussion looks at the ways that white noise exposes how broken, narcissistic, and foolish those in the alt-right movement really are. White Noise is a film that documents the venal desire for influence among many of the movement's most prominent figures. It also suggests that there's a corruptible drive for community that makes many in the United States and elsewhere vulnerable to narratives of white victimization and displacement. His film studies the ways that white supremacist influencers hack the algorithms that fuel follow culture and seek to, as he puts it, turbocharge their vile racist rhetoric. It also, in subtle ways, unpacks the causal links between racist rhetoric and violence. In light of this fact, we discuss what it would mean today to police and regulate online discourse, given the unignorable fact that banning Trump and other hateful figures from social media has radically reduced their ability to foment violence. Daniel notes that, regrettably, a number of streaming services have not wanted to host the film because its subject matter is seen as too high risk, hard-hitting, or political, but I feel that this is exactly the reason that the film should be seen. It opens onto an important conversation about how, in the context of a fractured and fractious political moment, we can learn to narrate the possibilities of multi-ethnic democracy and inject a more ethical radicalism into our political discussions. I think the um, the most interesting interview that I, I read uh, was the one you gave to Film Inquiry, where mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. like you know you talk at length um, about the you know the relationship you had to of course like the subjects of white noise, but what was particularly interesting for me in that interview is like you talk about the the feeling of putting it out into the world and saying you know like I I finished this film and there's been all of this great press it's made an impact. And you felt like, you know, the world should have sort of opened up that all of these ideas that you had, these, you know, questions and problems you want to explore, that you'd have an opportunity to do that. Um, and you say, like, you've, you've been frustrated because, of course, COVID has shut down so much of what you're able to do. I wondered if you could elaborate on some of the challenges that you're facing and maybe like other people like you with your skill set are facing in the current climate. Like, how hard is it right now to get projects going? Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for such a diligent reading of my previous interviews and work. Um, it's rare to come into these with someone doing more than just watching the film. Mm-hmm. And at times you can tell that they've just clicked around and have sure. watched, you know, hardly watched more than a few excerpts. Um, you know, I think filmmakers and, and all creative people have romantic expectations about their work and the impact that it might create. For a filmmaker, Sundance is the ideal. If Sundance fails, fails Tribeca and South by Southwest are the ideal. And there's this notion that if you get into Sundance, if you get you know the golden ticket, it opens up a whole new career for you. Um, I had no understanding of the festival circuit, of 
the film industry at large making this film. I was surrounded by some really great collaborators, but we were all journalism people. I mean, I'm a filmmaker and I love film even before I love journalism, but none of us had that industry insight and, and understanding. And we believe that Sundance and the rest was the golden ticket. And um, the golden ticket didn't come partially because the film was so controversial and the news cycle is so explosive at the moment that a film like this, you know, was, was, was a very dangerous proposition for a festival like that, even though they wrote us and said they loved it. Hmm. Anyway, we eventually got into a really great festival, AFI docs, and then like the best possible international premiere IDFA, which is like the top document, top documentary festival in Europe and potentially in the world. And, um, you know, the film launched to really great success. It's, it's, it's been mostly reviewed extremely favorably, the negative reviews are exactly what we expected when, you know, on day one of the project, which is don't pay attention to these people in any shape or form. And the whole premise of the film is to pay attention to them, to shine a light and to help raise awareness about how, how bad this stuff is, is becoming and, and how dangerous it ultimately is. But anyway, mm -hmm. you know, most of the reception was fantastic, but you know, I never had the chance to watch in a theater with other other theater goers, other, every filmmaker's dream. I, you know, never really had a chance to share it with family or friends. I mean, everything premiered in a remote environment and there was never that, you know, really cathartic emotional moment of sharing it with people. And I think to your original question, there was never really that moment of breakout um, mm -hmm. that filmmakers expect when their first film does, you know, as well as this or even better. Um, but I think ultimately it was a really great learning experience because it made me realize that like this idea that you make your first film and everything opens up is wrong. And if you go into making your film that way, you'll be severely disappointed in the way that I was maybe six months ago. But if instead you see feature filmmaking as a long career, and maybe it's not the source of your income because there's really no money there unless you're making films for Netflix, um, you know, you can find a way to make money a different way, whether it's teaching or making commercials or something like that. And then that frees up the space to make your next film. And I think once you realize that, that there's a hustle involved in everything and that, you know, the work that you do, the career that you have doesn't have to be your source of income. Um, I don't know. It, it changes the calculation. And I realized, you know, I could make two or three or five or 10 films in my life. And, you know, they don't have to have that. They don't have to get into Sundance. They don't have to get that $10 million streaming deal and they can still have an impact. Um, so uh, long story short is it made me actually more confident of the kind of independent route. Um, and I should say, like, you know, I'm still so much luckier than 90% of filmmakers having the Atlantic behind me, having you talking to me and so many other people talking to me. Um, the reception at, for many, many months, it was hard and we weren't getting traction. But the last five, six months, it's just really been great. And so many people have responded so well to the film. Yeah, it's an incredibly useful resource. I mean, um, the way that I looked at it, admittedly, is to see it as, you know, a uh, uh, a piece that's meant to supplement a larger kind of critique of, of this resurgent uh, white supremacy and white nationalism. I mean, I really, I read it alongside in particular uh, Alexandra Minna Stern's proud boys in the white ethno state. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like the perfect companion piece for that book. Um, and it, you know, this notion that in some of the negative reviews that one should just shouldn't pay attention to this particular film, I think is interestingly a kind of um, reactionary attitude to like visual culture itself. Like it's, it says that visual culture is sort of too captivating. It's like something that will 
by its very nature operate as a form of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think like looking closely at the film, that is not the impression you get at all. Um, exactly. Exactly. And whenever, when we tried to to sell the film and, and distri- we have a really great distributor who's bringing it to, to different international markets, but especially in the United States, when we tried to bring it to, to streaming services, they said it was fa- a fascinating work of journalism. They commend us and they respect us, but it wasn't a good fit for their audience. And basically what that means is it was too high. It was too high. It was a high risk proposition for them. Hmm. And they want something that's, you know, relatively low risk, that's entertaining, and that can be watched on multiple screens at the same time, meaning you can be texting, playing with your dog and watching the film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if something is as political as this, talking about the future of the country and doing it in, like you said, a controversial way, it's the opposite of what a streaming service wants. It, I can't share the name of the service here, but we actually had a, a deal on the table for a significant amount of money, not that I would have gotten it, you know, it's the Atlantic film ultimately, but we had a really great deal that would have helped us reach much larger audiences. Um, the acquisitions person at this streaming service loved it and believed it was so important. This is after January 6th and that the film in a way was almost prophetic that it predicted so much of what we're seeing now. And she believed in it. And then the CEO of that company blocked the deal at the last second. We were literally hours away from signing the paperwork. And the reason was exactly that, that the film was too politically risky for the platform. You know, it, it's a weird, to go back to your earlier point, it's a weird coalescence of, you know, a left wing that I'm, I'm mostly sympathetic to, but that doesn't, that like you said, sees visual language and aesthetics as being dangerous and certain things not deserving of a platform with corporate interests that are really scared to elevate anything that could alienate them. So the, you know, the CEO of this streaming service worries about alienating a very vocal flank mm-hmm. um, of the, of, you know, of the left. And it's a, I'm a left-leaning person and believe fully in racial and economic equality, but there's this weird moment now in the States where, you know, there's a very loud and vocal left and corporate interests and C-suite people like the CEO of this streaming service who don't necessarily care about these issues and maybe don't even share those beliefs, but they're really scared of alienating those people on Twitter and on social media. Either way, through conversations like this, through the Atlantic, through the political moment, the film has really left an impact and I'm, and I'm so, so grateful for that. But it's really been um, in spite of companies and in spite of streaming services and all the usual routes um, for getting a film out there. Yeah. Um, this interesting, you know, moment that, that you, um, where you talk in your film inquiry interview, for example, about how liberalism seems to offer kind of an incomplete solution that it's, you know, it, it provides you this sense of like civic responsibility, but the thing that makes it, um, you know, not as substantial, uh, a, an option for people is that lack of a sort of, um, identification or what you call the feeling of transcendence, um, you know, you, you say flatly, like liberals have to tell a better story. And I, I find, I find that's really interesting in relationship to what you're saying about this kind of, um, the sense of fracturing and polarization, this fear of actually engaging like directly with not just the kinds of politics that we oppose, but the politics, the kinds of politics that we're for, that we're like, that we openly want to advocate, you know, yeah. in the, you know, because of the kind of fractious nature of debate, there seems to be no space for creating what you call this kind of better story, this feeling of transcendence, like a vision basically of like a just society. So 
like for me your film is interesting in the sense that i mean on the one level it's just it's about exposing contradictions but then on on another level um it's about trying to articulate i think a politics of like how to oppose without being pedantic like yeah. how to oppose these fringe movements and advocate for like nonviolent social justice racial equality i think um in general your work is is attempting to do this without that kind of heavy-handed approach yeah exactly and you know the, the the feelings of a kind of isolation and animization all the things that many of us feel in the modern world um you know have left people really alone isolated depressed dealing with anxiety and you know all of the traditional markers of community are 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 fraying people are less likely to go to church they're less likely to be civically engaged and the alt right to to your point which referencing what i've said before is that they really provide a sense of higher purpose it's a flawed one it's a dangerous one but they give you the sense of transcendence that you're taking part in something larger and you know radical radical politics of the past you know in the center and especially on the left have provided that to people too that there was this idea that you're taking part in a larger project and you know as far as i've been alive and been an adult like there hasn't been to my knowledge like a real story behind our politics and anything beyond kind of tinkering at the edges, trying to figure out a solution to healthcare, trying to figure out a solution to the welfare state, but not asking the larger question of what is this all for? Um, and the alt-right addresses that. It, it hits you in the gut and it's deeply flawed for a million reasons. There's real, no historic notion of whiteness, but it still hits at that level that past ideological movements have hit and have helped, you know, in order to mobilize um, a cause. And, and, you know, for me, it, it just leads to a question, which is like, yeah, it, it, does the film offer a solution or whatever? I think it, it, think it says that, like, you know, if you're seeing this work so effectively on all of these young, mostly middle class kids, you know, it's, they have to be held account to the, you know, they have to be held to account, you know, if they committed crimes, all of the rest, but they're, they're, they're certainly being activated and animated. And you have to then ask, you know, what could the left do? And I, I think for me, it's to tell a story of, of equal magnitude that's equally as compelling. And, and for me, that's really about multiculturalism. It's, it's finding a way to make the multicultural narrative just as compelling and just as persuasive as the very, very dangerous and conspiratorial white nationalist one. But like, there was no notion when I grew up as a suburban kid in New York that I have this opportunity, this historical opportunity to build the first ever multi-ethnic democracy, that we have a chance to really instill equality for the first time. I just knew that I was like a middle-class white kid and one day I'll get a job and that's it. Um, and I almost feel like there should be like a little more radicalism, left-wing radicalism injected into us from a young age. And I don't mean identity politics. I mean, just having this understanding of where we fit historically and that this, what the US is attempting to do and Canada you know, build a multi-ethnic democracy, a free society is a rarity and it's very exciting and it's something we could all rally behind. Yeah. And um, I, I share a similar kind of experience of, you know, growing up in a small town that was incredibly homogeneous, like mm -hmm. just like a, an utterly, you know, kind of white rural uh, upbringing where growing up people openly advocated racist xenophobic views especially like anti-black racism and anti-indigenous racism mm -hmm. where i was growing up in um you know southern ontario um and i have found enormous meaning 
in just learning how deeply complex the world itself is. You know what I mean? Through films like this. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think, you know, in, in reading, uh, um, you know, uh, Stern's book, but also, uh, you know, books like A Brief History of Fascist Lies, you know, I've, I've realized that mm-hmm. it is really dangerous to just dismiss as sort of stupid or, you know, like purely ignorant these what what Finchelstein calls authoritarian fraudsters and their gullible followers. Like he says, like, you know, that approach does not explain much. Right. Like yeah. you need to understand it as symptomatic of something else. Like Trump, he says, is an extreme populist with ex- as xenophobic, anti-egalitarian agendas. But stereotyping him as a con man doesn't really get us anywhere. He belongs to a particular political tradition and we might revile that tradition, but it's, it's not, it's not enough to just dismiss it. Um, and I think this is part of what you're talking about, for example, in your radio West interview, uh, this, this tendency on the left to just label the racist, right, completely irrational. Um, and almost just like, uh, just a guttural visceral thing that has no, no rhetorical or political agenda. I mean, you're, you're exposing the fact that there are clear agendas and, you know, if you're going to contest those things, you kind of need to have an armature of like your own values in place to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's not, not so much a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can riff on a few things, which is um, these people are sim- symptomatic of a larger issue in the way that Trump was. And it, 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 it's it's such a, his, you know, silly historical blunder to ignore something that's having an, having an impact on our day to day lives. Um, you know, you could obviously take historical illusions, like how people, how the New York Times and many main publications really failed to understand Hitler's ambitions in the 30s, didn't take him seriously. And at times, you know, even like mainstream Jewish groups in the US really downplayed or ignored what he was doing. You know, ignoring difficult political movements has never been a positive thing. Certainly glorifying them and making them look like rock stars is an equally destructive thing to do. And white noise doesn't do that. Mm. Um but, you know, there, it, it's our job, our duty as journalists to, to tell complex stories and help people make sense of the world that's out, out and around them. And, um, you know, to really, you know, to, to, to raise awareness about, um, you know, like you said, if you grew up in a, in a, in a rural place with a, a certain understanding to provide a different understanding. And I think especially for progressives to understand how woven racism is into their everyday lives, that these are not just poor Southern Christian people. These are, you know, wealthy individuals who live in New York City. I bumped into so many subjects for my film on the streets of New York and Washington, D.C. You know, we had a really tragic scene in Paris with Lauren Southern. She goes to Belgium. We go to California. I mean, these ideas have traction. And to the point about Trump being a con man, just look at his kind of foil in white noise, Mike Cernovich. Mike Cernovich is sort of a Trump stand-in in a way, at least at least we thought of him that way and that he's a shapeshifter. He's, you know, sympathetic to racism when it's convenient, but he also can pivot away from it when it's no longer convenient. And you can't ignore, you know, you know, opportunists like him because they're having an impact. They're elevating people like Lauren Southern and Richard Spencer and really injecting ideas into our mainstream political discourse. I mean, to take one example right out of the film, Mike Cernovich tweeted hashtag sick Hillary that Hillary had Parkinson's. A few days later, it was on Sean Hannity's show. A few days after that, it was coming out of the president's mouth. I mean, if this struggling lawyer is is reshaping our political discourse in this country and 
selling the president of the United States on a conspiracy theory, certainly that is newsworthy and requires coverage. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, my operating principle from the beginning has been to to identify the most influential individuals, which happens to be the three in the film, try to get unprecedented access to them, which was very, very difficult to achieve. It took up to a year with Lauren Southern. And then to really understand their worldview and ultimately expose kind of the emptiness at the heart of all of it. And, you know, I, I firmly stand by the film and I think I'll stand by the film 10 and 20 and, and 50 years from now. I think um, it had the foresight to hopefully, you know, show everyone what was coming four or five years ago when I started this project. And um, I think we'll, we'll age well. I mean, we live in a deeply polarizing time where there's an influencer culture that benefits um, dangerous individuals like this. And a lot of those ideas lead to violence, as the film shows um, very clearly at the end. So uh, I don't think this is the last act for, for the alt-right and for these ideas. I think they're, they'll continue to stay around, whether on the margins or in the mainstream. And um, hopefully this film can be a helpful contribution to, to people's understanding of that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to come back to the specific way that the film and some of the other work that you've done approaches the question of violence and in particular violence's source, the, the ideological sources of violence um, and how some of these groups, which are, as you say, like fundamentally about violence, sort of disguise that fact for PR reasons. Yeah. You know, like I certainly want to come back to that um, because I think the way you frame that in the film is really subtle. Um, but I guess to your, your point about the, the kind of persistence of the alt-right. Like you've noted that the alt-right as the kind of thing that Spencer kind of uh, helped to generate coining the term and then really, you know, pushing it as hard as he could has sort of, um, it's declined, right? Or it's come full circle to some extent back to the moment before Trump in 2015, where it was very much a fringe thing. But what you've also pointed out, I think in your uh, Duke panel discussion is that um, you're, you're seeing the persistence of it in the so-called alt-light, where, you know, you say like well, white nationalism may be statistically a small space, you know, five or 10 percent of Americans, still a lot of people, but it's a much, much larger space if you reckon with the kind of research, for example, that George Hawley does. George Hawley has this book, Making Sense of the Alt-Right, where, you know, he says, yes, this is the case. Let's say like 11 million might identify as like white nationalists. But then if you look deeper into like feelings of white victimization, trying to preserve a strong sense of white identity, there's actually a much more, you know, dangerous thing happening. Exactly. Uh, What he calls these kind of attitudinal trends that indicate openness to authoritarian and populist politics. Like this is to me the, the real gift of the film is like trying to expose how this war, as Spencer himself puts it, is happening less at the level of like traditional politics, like party politics, than it is at the level of meta politics or culture, right? Like Mm -hmm. one of the parting moves of the Trump administration was to attack critical race studies, like a fear of ideas, warfare at the level of ideas. Like, you know, do we need more awareness of this kind of element of fascism that it can happen again at the level of culture, aesthetics, and per, like performance, basically, of, of identity. Performance of identity, I've never heard that said before, and I think captures the film in this movement extremely well. It's about performing a kind of like uppity whiteness um, and finding community in that that probably never, that's ahistorical, that's never existed before. 
And that exists both in the virtual space, but also in the physical space, most clearly and most loudly in the virtual space, because, you know, this was first an online movement before it became a real life movement, but also in the physical space. I mean, Spencer is kind of like the trust fund Fuhrer of the alt-right. He's a, he's a wealthy guy and coined the term in 2008 and kind of wrote a lot of the fundamental texts of the movement, but he's also in a way a cult leader. And when you're around him, it feels like you're inside a cult. It's a kind of performative identity. Like you said, they, mm -hmm. they all read the same books. They all talk the same way. They all dress the same way. And most of them are young and most of them are middle to upper class, uh, middle to upper middle class. It's, it's a difficult question about whether it's on the rise or declining. I know you didn't quite put it that way, but just to speak to that point quickly is that, you know, I think even though individuals like Richard are declining, the alt-right is not back where it was in 2015. The ideas that they've unleashed are now in the mainstream of our politics. And like you said, embodied in people like these alt-light figures, Cernovich, Steve Bannon, Steve King, the former congressman, Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, and so many others. And I think kind of the broader point that I like to come back to is that people are becoming aware of their whiteness as a primary marker of identity in a way that they probably didn't before. And there's always been subtle ways that white power has worked and the Republican Party certainly has always played on racialized themes. Everyone probably knows that the Willie Horton ad that, that mm -hmm. the first Bush ran on, um, you know, making black people criminals and Latinos rapists and all the other themes that Trump said, but he brought them to the fore and, anim and made them animating parts of identity in a way that they weren't before. And now, you know, these are the US and Canada and Australia and even Western Europe are becoming more and more diverse. I think that's a wonderful thing and a thing that's, you know, long deserving of countries that were founded on ethnic cleansing of the native people. I mean, Richard Spencer certainly can't claim to be a native American, but to them, it's a threat to their power and to their status that they've seen declining, you know, over, over decades and especially over the last, you know, decade or two. So, um, you know, George Hawley is a really great academic and I think you hit the nail on the head, which is that like, there's a whiteness that's 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 being activated and it's really not the five or ten percent who say proudly i am a white nationalist i'm in the alt-right it's the 20 percent or the 30 percent who at a gut level relate to those things who are upset that their neighborhoods are changing and i think most importantly are absorbing just this garbage on social media every day sharing it in you know in whatsapp groups and on twitter and youtube and and uh you know making an algorithm that was really never designed for this sort of stuff, just totally go bonkers. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just, it, it will continue to spread like wildfire and outlive the three, you know, foolish individuals that are, that are in my film. This is, and again, this is all kind of presented in, in as much of a kind of neutral way as you can muster. There are brief moments where you'll intervene, um, you know, and I wanted to, I guess, you know, speak to, the choices around framing, yeah, you know, like you've described the film as a follow film and said like it was really risky to take that kind of approach of just following these figures. But the point was to try and understand the interior lives of these three main characters, you know, Spencer, Southern and Cernovich in terms of the way that you you allow them to hang themselves, to use the term that you've used before. Yeah. You know, it's mostly about lingering over moments of contradiction yeah yeah um you know so like the the very conclusion of the film like seeing spencer slump in his chair and check his watch like <laughs> yeah. you feel that emptiness 
Um, and you say that that was a tactical choice to try and take their power away. Yes. You know, and, and you've said too, like that, that, that approach has led, you know, led you to draw the ire of these people. Like Lauren hates the film has attacked you, I guess, to some extent, you know, yeah, big time. The movement around these people has been trolling you, yeah. you know, the, but these, it seems like these tactics do grow out of a recognition that, you know, contemporary white supremacy is about a certain kind of politics of aesthetics and culture. It is. It's this cultural struggle. So if you, if you just let the camera roll, then you can capture these contradictions. Um, but yeah, so like in terms of the framing, it's not like you give the audience a definition of like meta politics or the Overton window. No. Yeah. It's more about providing this embedded account and firsthand evidence um, for other, you know, people to really study the, this form of far right populism more clear, uh, more clearly. I see the film and saw the film as a primary source document. Mm -hmm. A lot of documentaries are, are sort of secondary sources where you have someone sitting in a chair commenting on a, a past historical occurrence. Maybe you have archive that's primary source, but it was my goal to really, you know, capture this movement in real time as, as difficult as that was logistically to pull off and, and you know, to persuade these people to do it, but also the controversial, you know, fallout that I would inevitably deal with taking an approach like that and mm -hmm. understanding from day one, all of the pitfalls that can come that you can be accused of glamorizing or making them rock stars, or even as thoughtful as the film is and revealing what it reveals, you know, ultimately giving a platform, which is something that's inherent to the film and that I can, you know, no amount of argument could ever disprove, but still, you know, I think that the film was meant to be a primary source document and it's had a, a really amazing reception from academics, actually from political scientists and philosophers and people study communications, actually did a university. I did a panel with a few communications professors, all of the, all of the terms you've mentioned, Metapolitics, especially Overton Window, you know, are things that inform the work, but the spirit of the work is to allow you to make your own inferences, to take away things that I think are abundantly clear by the end, that this is a growing and dangerous movement, but also a deeply empty one. That these are narcissistic people that in a way their interior lives are so broken that they're, that they're causing violence, um, they're enacting violence on the rest of the world. Um, and, the, and, and the last point I'll add is, you know, in a, in a written article, it's dangerous and silly and can, and can seem silly to write, oh, you know, it's wrong to say, oh, Nazis are just like us. They eat pasta. They, you know, they, they go to this place, they go to that place. But the power of cinema is that you're able to show it without saying it. I mean, you can see how normal they are. You can see that this is, holy shit, this is, you know, set in New York and DC and Paris, not where I thought it would be when I clicked onto this movie, not in Alabama. And there's a way to, the subtlety has its own power where I'm not saying it. And I think in a way that does um, protect me from a few of the criticisms that some of the writers get when they're a little bit too, a little, a little too on the nose about the kind of normalcy of, of these individuals. You know, and, and there's an interesting thing that happens in the context of white noise where dwelling with these people humanizes them in a certain sense, but that humanizing is precisely like counter to their brand and their agenda. Exactly. You know, they want to be, you know, Spencer says, like, I'm bigger than this movement. Southern is seeking a certain kind of celebrity. You know, Cernovich is this self-aggrandizing mischief maker. But because you spend so much time with them, it really, uh, rather than humanizing them in a way that engenders any kind of like sympathy, you see them as flawed and frail and small. And uh, it does take their power away. And, you know, I, I would 
liken this to the the um, the current HBO documentary series Alan and Pharaoh and other films, other documentary films that are about trying to uh, mark a certain kind of um, uh, culture change or political shift around questions of uh, believing women, believing uh, sexual assault survivors. I mean, this is a figure in Woody Allen who yeah. um, has been. Uh, uh, untouchable to use the title of the documentary that, that focuses on Harvey Weinstein, right. Yeah. Um, who, who, because of his influence on cinema has been, uh, you know, has, has escaped this kind of scrutiny, but like the comparison that I would make to your film is that increasingly in that documentary series, there's this use of, you know, voiceover interventions, as you say, like uh, forms of exposition that are meant to uh, provide us with that, that moral clarity, that context, but I think in that you have to make these kinds of tactical decisions as a documentary filmmaker. Like, yeah. um, you know, they introduce us in that in that film to this idea of parental alienation, which is an argument in legal defense that's been used to silence people who have been abused. That's necessary context yeah. uh, for understanding the kind of violence um, they're trying to capture. And and I think the the difference is with your film is that the way that you're approaching violence is is necessarily about trying to actually trouble um, our clean understandings of, of violence, of the sources of violence. And like, hmm. in particular, I would, hmm. I would ask, like, if you were to recut this film, re rethink it in the, con in the, in the aftermath of the Capitol siege, like, how would you, you know, how would you go about it? Because as you say, this is the, the main way I would say in, in which, you know, the film has been prophetic in predicting the correlation between kind of a metapolitical rhetoric around, you know, uh, a stolen election and and a certain kind of white nationalism, it has seemingly led directly to this like wave of, you know, white nationalist violence. Like, um, so I mean, you 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 draw these kinds of connections in the film between rhetoric and violence, uh, but you leave it up to the viewer to make these kinds of like final determinations. Yeah. Would that approach change if you were to make the film today in the aftermath of that siege? No, I don't think so. I'm very proud of the concluding montage in the film because it draws a very, very direct causal link between the rhetoric of the, the rhetoric of the alt-right and, and the violence that, that was carried out. I mean, we saw a shooting in, in New Zealand at a mosque killing around 50, a shooting in, in Pittsburgh at a synagogue killing, I believe, I believe 12 shooting in El Paso kill, um, at, at a Walmart in an effort to target Mexicans. At all of those shootings, the, the, the shooters left manifestos, and, and in all of them, they referenced the ideas that I had been covering in the alt-right, talking about white genocide, white displacement, an invasion, a Hispanic invasion. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, it's, it's very clear when you study historical movements, like what happened in Rwanda or obviously in Nazi Germany and others, that rhetoric has consequences. And when people of political authority, or I guess in the modern context, influencers who have followings, when they say things repeatedly and persuasively with very high production values as they do, their followers will come to believe it. And, you know, you see Lauren Southern do this very persuasively. She's making feature length films in Russia and, and more importantly, in, in Paris, premiering those films at the European Parliament um, and being treated like, uh, you know, like the next great film film director, even though her work is quite poor, as I'm sure you see in the film. These works are persuasive, they're dangerous, and they lead to violence. I think the one thing that I'm careful to say, careful not to say, 
is that, for instance, Lauren Southern led to this shooting or Mike Cernovich led to that. It's difficult to, to, to go from point A to point B, but it's very clear that when you create a climate of violence in your rhetoric and in your ideas, which, by the way, are violent, they believe in preserving white power or ultimately changing the demographic makeup of these of the U.S. and Canada, you know, that ultimately leads to, leads to violent outcomes. And what we saw in the Capitol, you know, is in my mind a continuation of the three shootings that I mentioned and the many others that we, we've seen in, in Poway and San Diego and hundreds in, in, in Europe and around the world. Um, the only thing I would add is I would add probably the Capitol siege as that fourth example in the montage of, of rhetoric leading to violence. And the culprit there is very clear. It's, it's, it's uh, Rudy Giuliani and ultimately Donald Trump talking about a stolen election again and again and again and saying, you know, I alone can fix it and that we have to show strength. And, you know, that inevitably leading to, to what we all witnessed on January 6th. So I really stand by the film. And, and, and when that tragic moment happened, which I was, you know, shell-shocked by, I, I, I also, in a way, felt like the work that I had been doing predicted that as, as upsetting and, 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 and disgusting an outcome it was. And if only more people paid attention to this movement, were clear-eyed about what they wanted, you know, we might have been more vigilant on a day like that, and, and we might have been more ready to, to push back against those ideas. And, you know, yeah, been more proactive than reactive. There's certainly a way in which, like, in the aftermath of that siege, um, you know, uh, social media and, and various tech companies were sort of themselves held accountable for facilitating the kind of coordination uh, that was required. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the dissolving of Parler, for example, this the payment processor deplatforming, taking away the means of like fundraising yeah. for a lot of these these groups like that happened after the fact, um, and I certainly want to um, you know maybe ask you some you know questions about where you're at in terms of thinking about the culpability of social media companies. I know you've tried to take a position of neutrality around that because <laughs> yeah. it is such a tricky issue. I mean, right? Like it's. It's an issue that raises all kinds of questions about freedom of speech, of course, and the flow of information online, especially in the, especially in the American context. You know, I think in Europe there's a long tradition of hate speech laws, as I'm sure you've read in interviews. I'm, I'm Jewish. My grandmothers are Holocaust survivors, and you know, hate speech laws come out of the vile. You know what what happened 80, 70 years, seventy eighty years ago in Europe. Even then, as an American, I love the First Amendment, respect the First Amendment, and you know, very supporting of the First Amendment. I think the U.S. has a really great political tradition in that way. Definitely not in others like the Second Amendment. But then when it comes to tech, it's a really tricky question. And I'm very careful not to say what to do there because, I, I you know, banning people or individual, you know, ideas really goes against everything I believe and, and really the work that I do. At the same time now, looking at the past three months since January 6th, President Trump has just, you know, fallen out of the public conversation he doesn't have the way, you know, the ability to reach masses and animate them, rile them, them up the way he did in the past. Of course, he can go on Fox News. He's sending these like really depressing press releases that I get in my email, my inbox all the time. Um, but it's just not the same thing. It doesn't have that kind of turbocharged energy that you get on Twitter where people are commenting and retweeting and just feeding off each other. Mm -hmm. So the long story short is that the ban worked. I mean, he's just not as powerful as he was before. And I watched Lauren Southern get banned from fundraising platforms when I was with her. It made it harder for her to fundraise. You know, I watched uh, Richard Spencer get banned off platforms, and it, you know his 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 traffic numbers also also fell. 
So I, again, I'm not going to, I'm careful to say not this or yes to this, but it, it is pretty clear that banning people from large tech platforms does affect their reach. And that's something that I was actually cautious to say a few months ago. And now with the Trump example, I feel pretty confident to say, um, not making a moral judgment, but just observing that it very, very clearly has affected, you know, the former president's ability to connect with, with voters, with his base. Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's a nuanced response. Mm. It's easier in a sense to take the position that I often do take when I'm teaching of kind of openly advocating for what's now called cancel culture. You know, like Roxanne Gay, I think, recently appeared on a podcast and said, like, there's no such thing as cancel culture. What cancel culture really represents is, um, you know, a push for social justice that, you know, those with traditional conservative values fundamentally um, are going to resist because it's a you know threat to their specific authority. And I think like that clear cut approach is in some sense easier than saying like there are situations in which, you know, for example, the Biden administration deciding to crack down on, um, you know, various forms of dissent in the wake of the Capitol siege might, of course, like come back to actually haunt us in the form of like suppressing all forms of dissent. Like there is that fear. Yeah. And but I think yeah. the thing that for me, um, you know, provides me with a greater sense of like clarity around this is the fact that, um, you know, these are, you know, platforms that we don't that are that are black boxes that we don't really understand completely. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is something that um, you know, the Proud Boys uh, book talks about the fact that, um, you know, as as she puts it in that book, the feedback circuitry is instrumental to this, this like logic of amplification. You know, it, it still matters, I think, that most of our action is reaction. It's after Charlottesville, it's after a capital siege um, that these companies start to crack down, as you've pointed out. This is, this is, again, I think one of the contributions of the film, like there's this really crucial moment uh, where you have a conversation with Laura Southern's director. Yeah, yeah. And and he talks about this, right? The fact that um, you have fringe views entering the mainstream primarily because of this amplification effect. Um, so he's like exposing this as like... It was stunning. To, uh, a key thing. Yeah, well, you know, he's the mastermind of... He was, I should say, the mastermind of her image and her brand and helped her reach you know, new and especially more legitimate audiences by cleaning up her look really in, in, in terms of everything from the way she dressed to the way she did makeup to, you know, ultimately raising the cinematic production values of her work. Right. The interesting thing about Kaylin is he actually left the movement about a year ago and is one of the few people I know who's owned up to his past and apologized and is trying to make amends. Interesting. So I, I, I talked to him and his boyfriend all the time. He's, uh, he's um, actually gay and has been in a relationship with his partner for a long time. His partner is also a filmmaker and his partner also used to collaborate with Lauren Southern. They would work together. Um, Kaylin and his partner, George, have, have left the movement completely and they're now working to rehabilitate people who are curious about leaving the alt-right but are maybe too scared to make that jump. Hmm. So, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, it's it's very depressing. This is a bit of a digression, but it's very depressing how few people leave that movement. Um, Kaylin and his partner are one of the few. And, you know, I, I first was very, very skeptical. And, you know, over the past year, I've just seen them do more and more work. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that. And I hope more people move in that direction. But to your point, you know, what he says in the film is so unsettling. It's so on the nose because you kind of you, you feel like he's an expert and then you realize he's actually talking about his own 
efforts at propaganda, that he's such a skilled propagandist that he understands how it works, how to hack the algorithm. In a way, it's like peeking behind the curtain of the algorithm of the tech platform itself um, or some of the kind of darker operators that are using it. Um, and I was really, it's rare in an interview where something catches your ear right away because so much is being said. It usually takes until the edit. But right when he said that, I knew that was a key line. And for so many people who've watched the film, it's really been an anchor point to understand, contextualize everything that they've been watching up till that moment. There, there are a few moments like that, but that one um, was a jaw dropper for sure. What you're saying about uh, Kalen reminded me of a, a Canadian short film called Skinhead, mm-hmm. uh, which is about this this figure, Brad Galloway, who was at the center of right wing extremism in Canada, but is now, you know, helping uh, uh, to map out active hate groups in Canada. And, and he's the center of this film really as a means of, you know, providing you again with that direct access to a certain psychology and a certain desperate need for belonging and so on. So yeah. um it's an interesting story. Hmm. And, and clearly, you know, uh, you, you've talked to, uh, in recent interviews about wanting to do like narrative features as well. And but like there are clearly sort of differences between obviously directing a documentary versus creating a fictional film. You know, a, a documentary is meant to be less overtly mm-hmm. a construction. And so I, I would assume that you as a director um, have have you know less of a singular responsibility perhaps for the form and the structure that the film takes, especially when you're trying to create a, a so-called follow film. Yeah. But your films nonetheless do um, offer this this story, right? They offer a clear sense of uh, um, you know kind of the interior life of of the people you're studying. Mm-hmm. I looked at, for example, uh, your short film Christian Militant, mm. and and how like again you're you're studying particular people in order to try and more subtly expose certain hypocrisies and, you know, in particular around violence, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. These, these, this one figure saying like, we aren't a hate group. And then juxtaposing that with moments of like explicit transphobia, the stories that you've told in particular about, um, you know, religious identity. Like I wondered if you could elaborate on your, your personal and professional investment in that, you know, in that kind of material, because yeah, as you say, like you've grown up in a traditional Jewish home, yeah. your identity is something that was stressed to you, uh, but you see it as a complicated leg- legacy. You know, how, for example, did you go about creating the short film Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank, having that degree of like personal connection to a particular uh, past? It's a tough question. You know, I often maybe t- too much psychoanalyze myself and the intentions behind my work. I think, think ultimately documentary what's so appealing to me about it is what is like you is is the antithesis of fiction like you said fiction is about construction Mm -hmm. the film is built in the script of of course you're bringing a a cinematic sensibility and music and sound but you're constructing something And, and for me i'm at my most comfortable and confident when i'm out in the world with no roadmap able to jump on a subway and end up in some random neighborhood in queens meet a person on the street have them bring me into their home, meet their whole family. And then by the end of the night, find out, you know, their whole story about wherever they came from and and their aspirations and all the rest. I mean, for me, that's the magic of life. It's the magic of living in New York city where I live, that there's all of these stories kind of unfolding right in front of you. I think even more than that, I was someone who came from a little bit more of a traditional family with somewhat more traditional expectations. 
and something about fiction always felt indulgent. It felt like, mm. why should I, why am I the right person to sit in a room for four months, write a script and then direct people like Francis Ford Coppola and pretend like you're the man and everyone else is just a prop. It felt like a, a really narcissistic endeavor. And, and then I started trying doc and there was just something like so entrancing about doing what I said before, meeting someone, following them, entering their world. And then I realized, you know, the technology had become so much more accessible that I could just do it alone or do it with one or two crew members. And that felt very liberating. Um, and I haven't stopped since. I've been doing it, you know, nonstop for eight years and really filmmaking for like 10 or 12. Um, in terms of like the, 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 the stories I'm drawn to, I mean, I, I kind of, I'm kind of, you know, I grew up in, in such a, in, in, with such a strong sense of identity because my grandparents, but my dad is also from Israel and served in the army and is a more kind of right-leaning person. And I'm drawn to kind of the complications of what it is to live in the world as someone who is conservative or traditional or religious or many of the kind of value systems that we now see as archaic. It's not that I admire them, but I just think that it just sets you up for such rife conflict. And I'm a filmmaker, I'm a storyteller. You know, if you're, to take the example of Church Militant, that, I mean, the, the story just tells itself. It's a story about a man, a repressed homosexual man, who in order to make up for his homosexuality, starts a far-right fake news media empire and starts purveying fake news because he's too guilty to admit that he's just a gay man um, living in denial. And, like, you know, being a conservative existing in, like, a liberal space the way he, he did, um, just, like... A activated a lot of really interesting questions and conflicts that as a storyteller, I find very, very interesting. And these are questions that exist in all kind of like more conservative frameworks, whether it's a, you know, a religious community or dealing with, you know, ultra nationalists the way I did there, or even something like a cult, I guess I shouldn't say conservative. I guess I, what I would say is like a, a more of a, a, a community oriented space. I just find interesting maybe because it's the way I grew up and, and it's so foreign to the way that many other people in America and Canada grow up. So I don't know how I land on these particular stories, but I just know that there's something interesting that happens when you rub, you know, a conservative traditional or a kind of communitarian person or idea up against a deeply liberal and individualistic culture. Yeah, it's, it's deeply complex stuff. Um, it's not necessarily providing, you know, a, a kind of, you know, a really linear account. I didn't know what to expect uh, going into viewing um, your your short film, you know, on the occupied West Bank. Um, you provide this historical context. It's not an overt vilification of this this occupation. It is one that definitely identifies the ways in which this is, um, you know, an Ill illegal considered an illegal occupation and one that is producing conflict and. And it, there's this key moment in the film where someone, you know, articulates it in terms of, you know, juxtaposing contemporary suffering with with the uh, the Holocaust. And it really, you know, it, it doesn't succeed in providing clarity. But what it does give you access to is the like complicated, you know, mental pr and emotional processing that people are doing on the ground. Exactly. In order to like define violence. And define uh, uh, who is, in some sense, deserving of violence. Like it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not easy subject matter. And I think, you know, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not inclined clearly as a storyteller to provide it to the viewer 
as though it is like easily digestible. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that of all the shorts I've done is the most journalistic. It's the most, you know, it's a form that I don't love as a storyteller. It's sort of treating, you know, it's, it's sort of a hosted video, but the one concession I was able to make was to treat the journalist sort of as a character. So there's a little bit of an emotional journey in his, in his arc, which I needed, you know, I think most other filmmakers would have just treated him as like a vice style correspondent and be left with it. Mm-hmm. But I found, you know, him as a Muslim American going there, there was enough, enough of an emotional arc to, to you know, to, to really, to give a spine to the film and also to be a, to be a window um, for the viewer who might be new to this, who are, who are going to be seeing things for the first time in the way that he was seeing things for the first time. You know, it's not, like I said, it's not, it's not a, 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 a form that I'm the most comfortable with because it's like him interviewing many different people. It's a little more like National Geographic, but I still think it gets at this theme that's across my work, which I really am happy that you've noticed is like the intimacy of individual lives and the psychology of people. And I, you know, I, I come out of a film or read a piece of journalism that I love. If it changes the way I look at the world and it gives me more questions than answers. And I think we live in a political moment where people want clarity. They want a hot take. And, uh, you know, the kind of work I do is, is intended not to be that way. It's intended to ask more questions and provide answers. And mm-hmm. it's intended to give a window into, you know, the very complicated psychology of people because there are no easy answers and all questions lead to other questions. In a way, it's kind of a very, maybe this is like my Jewish upbringing affecting my work. You know, it's Judaism is a lot about asking questions all the time. I mean, there's a book called the Talmud, which is like the, rabbis uh, interpreting kind of historical ethical questions and it's centuries of rabbis in the margins interpreting and reinterpreting and reinterpreting again and again and again very basic questions like if a murderer comes into your house with a knife can you kill him and there's no answer really there's no pope there's no pope in judaism or pope-like figure or central authority who can just issue a verdict like you know the tradition exists in a way to keep asking questions and to be curious. And that's the spirit of my work is to come out of it and to have really great conversations like this and others and to change the way you look at the world, but not to offer a very clear, clear solution. Well, and um, well, thanks. I I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, I really appreciate you making the time. We didn't even really get into a discussion of Lauren Southern uh, as you know, as you mentioned in many interviews, she really is the most complicated uh, person in this in this film, especially because of the, you know how hostile um, the alt right movement or white nationalism in general is to women. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. we, there is an overwhelming misogyny uh, that characterizes the alt right and has led to the harassment of some uh, women uh, uh, who identify as white nationalists. And and you know, rather than castigate her for for you know exposing herself to this kind of abuse your film is mostly about trying to let her come to well not let her but document her coming to these kinds of realizations around the kind of you know the contradictions that she inhabits so yeah um i i recommend people seek out uh, uh the things that you've said about the you know your your relationship to southern who has this enormous uh reach you know you've got this really terrific article um why the alt-right's most famous woman disappeared where you you catch up with her and 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 you know provide a bit of a coda to the film actually well thank you for having me i mean the short of it is that lauren um you know 
she perpetuated a lot of things that came back to bite her and no one deserves to go through what she went through dealing with sexual harassment and, and, and even worse, but she also created an environment where that sort of thing was, was popular and possible. And I really hope that going through that experience, she would change. And in act two of the film, you see her reckoning with a lot of those questions. And some of them are questions from me directly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's the one time I stepped out of my impartial bubble and said, this is a young person. Maybe she'll say sorry the way that Kaylin did, her filmmaker. Maybe she'll own up and be, you know, use that 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 passion and 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 put it to use in a positive way. Ultimately, she didn't. And she's now, you know, as right wing as ever. She's reinvented herself as an anti-lockdown, anti-COVID mm-hmm. um, activist she she lives in australia now with her partner where he's originally from and um as you mentioned earlier despises the film and has really incited the alt-right against me and my work ever since it came out so um you know it tells a very different story which is that these ideas are seductive and you get addicted to the fame and like any celebrity it can be hard to to let go of that fame Hmm. um you know i think with lauren and also really with richard it reminds me of Sunset Boulevard, if you've seen that that film, mm-hmm. and Norma Desmond, who is like the um, you know famous actress from the age of um, silent films, you know talkies come around, people are now speaking in films, and everyone forgets her, and she's alone in her mansion. But instead of changing, she just becomes she digs in deeper and becomes more narcissistic, and still believes that she's the greatest and the best ever. Uh, and unfortunately, with 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 Richard and Lauren specifically, like that that's where they are now, and they're not going to change. But um, yeah, well, thank you so much for the conversation. I really, really enjoyed this. And I really, you know, such a close reading of all the things I've done. I'm very grateful. I appreciate it so much.